Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. From Autosport.com and Autosport Magazine, I'm Martin Lee, and this is the Autosport Podcast. And I hope you're enjoying our latest mini-series as we look at another series of top tens. And this time, our editors from around Autosport have put together their favourite top ten lists, and we're looking at the top ten Ligier F1 drivers today. I'm sure we're going to have some fun with this. A team full of Gallic flair since they moved from sports car racing into Formula One in 1976. And a team that would take seven seasons of Formula One entry just to realise maybe we should have a non-French driver. One of the many reasons that people will remember Ligier with a smile, I'm sure, for many reasons. The drivers and, of course, even the explosive character uh, who we uh, we will get on to, uh, who the team is named after. Joined today on the podcast by uh, Marcus Simmons, who put this list together. So just tell us quickly why you were happy to do a, a Ligier list for us. First of all, I'm afraid I've forgotten to bring the obligatory packet of Gitan with me. Um, oh, but, uh, oh, no. But anyway, uh, <laughs> I, I, always, I always had a fascination with Ligier as a kid and young adult following Grand Prix racing in the late 70s, early 80s. And they did seem to have the Gallic flair that you've mentioned um, at the beginning. Um, they had some cool drivers. They had some very quick cars. 
I always had a fascination with the French drivers who came up through the ranks and we used to see regularly in um, Formula 2 in this country as well in the the 1970s drivers like Didier Peroni, René Arnoux, Patrick Depaye who we may go on to talk about have they made our (laughs) top 10 it just seemed a fantastic system that they had in place in France and and a lot of them or some of them went on to drive for Ligier and have um, and have success and um, obviously most of the success or that oh, sorry their most successful seasons were really 79 and 80 as far as competitiveness was concerned but those years they were using the Cosworth V8 engine but uh, but who can argue with a team that otherwise used the match of E12 for their um, for their early years and just <laughs> the most glorious sounding engine and I can still hearing I can still hear it echoing around the amphitheatre at Brands Hatch in my in my mind now uh, just fantastic but it's still screaming around in your in your head uh, and joined by our chief editor Kevin Turner who has turned gamekeeper to poacher from list writer to critique although um, I don't know how this list will go because uh, the one we did with uh, with Minardi uh, you were pretty much in agreement with a lot of that list so let's see how you go with Ligier Kev. Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> when we were looking at doing the second, the, the first series, the teams picked themselves, didn't they? They were all the big, they're basically the big six, the, the sort of recent five plus Lotus. And then we thought, well, I want to do a second series because there are a few big teams that no longer exist. And then there are also a few teams that were around a long time that perhaps didn't achieve, you know, the top results. Um, so I thought it would make, make it quite a fun thing to do for the second series to, to look at those teams. But it's an awful lot harder. Uh, when you're looking at, at, at drivers and teams that spent a lot of the time in the midfield or occasionally like in Ligier's case they, they were all over the place sometimes they were very competitive and almost in you know in championship contention and in other days they were sort of midfield towards the back so comparing drivers across those different eras is very difficult which is why I decided to cop out and uh, <laughs> ask a few of my colleagues to help with the second series so and the moment I thought we should do a Ligier one then Mar- Marcus it was an, it was an obvious uh, obvious conversation and uh, yeah, he didn't didn't take very long to uh, well, it didn't take very long to to say yes. Let's put, let's put it that way. So, um, yeah, we might we might struggle to have too much disagreement on this, but so let's let's see how we go. We'll start with our number ten place, which can sometimes be a little bit contentious because it's who you leave out and is in eleventh place. But in tenth place, very experienced driver. Now, remember, we're not talking about the drivers and you know how this driver might have raced at uh, at you know Renault or any elsewhere, but for Ligier, Rene Arnoux, Spence. 86 to 89 with Ligier and started 53 times and he just scrapes into your list. Why is that? Kevin said I was quite enthusiastic about doing this list and once I'd got to five or six, I suddenly thought, blimey, who else is going to fill the top 10? Because there really is a massive drop off. <laughs> um, such such was the story of Ligier. René Arnoux, if he'd left Ligier after one season in 1986, he'd be higher up this list. Had he not joined them until 1987, he wouldn't be in the list at all. <laughs> um, uh, it's it's predominantly um, because of the 86 season. So he'd he'd come back. Um, that was the year he came back to Formula One after being sacked by Ferrari just one race into the 85 season. He was alongside um, Jacques Lafitte, who was the the favourite son of Ligier, had and had already been back there for for one year. They had the Renault V6 turbo engine. The car was quite decent over the first half of that season um there were some competitive showings and and Arnoux was actually comprehensively quicker than Lafitte although Lafitte raced very well 
there was a memorable race where they ran one two in the Detroit Grand Prix with um, with Lafitte in front of Arnoux. Uh, uh, but then came Lafitte's British Grand Prix accident uh, where he broke his legs and he was replaced by Philippe Alio um, for the rest of the season. And um, and yeah, Arnoux against Lafitte um, was. Yeah, he was competitive and we have to regard Lafitte as a very, very good F1 driver. So so that's the reason he makes the top 10. After that, it all went off the rails a bit. Um, <laughs> Ligio did a deal with Alfa Romeo for engines for 87 and then Arnoux decided to slag them off to the Italian press and Alfa Romeo said, right, we're not supplying you engines anymore. And his career over the last three years was more noticeable for being criticised by James Hunt on the, on the commentaries. Yes. Um, but... Uh, but yeah, he, he just he just about sneaks in, and I did I did make the comment um, in the in in this top ten that uh, perhaps Olivier Griard was unlucky not to make the top ten, um, who was um, Arnoux's teammate in his last in his last season at Ligier. Mm. Um, but uh, Griard started very brightly, but then in '89 and was really blowing blowing off Arnoux as a Formula 3000 graduate. But then he started crashing quite a bit. Um, and that sort of hampered his case to be in this top 10, really, and, and then went off to Osella for the following season. So um, so Arnoux, yeah, just just about makes it in. Great character. Uh, well, probably probably not a great character if you were another Formula One driver in the 1980s. <laughs> but uh, but, uh, but one, of the, yeah, one of the quickest blokes of the 80s on his day uh, in the right car, uh, which yes. which probably wasn't the case at Ligio. Uh, so Kevy scrapes in. Yeah, I think that <laughs> I was chucked into myself there. I agree with it. Well, I must admit, if I think Arnu in a Ligio, I immediately think of whichever James Hunt put down was going on. The one that stands in my mind is the Monaco one where Murray Walker very, very coolly just says, oh, and Arnu's uh, talking about uh, he's struggling to adapt from turbos to normally aspirated engines. And James James Hunt's response is, he's suitably short and concise. <laughs> <laughs> and I suspect probably quite accurate as well, given that the top drivers did go from the turbos to normally aspirated with no trouble at all. So... I, I, str- I struggle a little bit just because I think of, of, of him just getting in the way of the front runners was the only time we ever seemed to see him in the Ligier. Um, but yeah, 86 probably just, 1986 probably just does scrape him in. I've got another name I wanted to put to, to Marcus and see how close he came to getting in as well. Because I, 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 one of the names that came to my mind when thinking Ligier was Eric Comas. Um, how close did he to, because obviously he perhaps didn't compare as well against his teammate as I thought when I actually went away and looked it up, but how close did Comas get to coming into the list? Yeah, he, he was on that borderline. If, if they'd been a top 13, he would certainly have been in it. Um, but yeah, I mean, he was up, um, he was up alongside Thierry Bootson for, for his two seasons. And, uh, and the first season, 92, he was, he was a bit disappointing against against Boots and sorry, um, ninety one wasn't it? Ninety one was um, the first season, and he was a bit disappointing against Boots and who had had a very good career at Williams, but uh, but wasn't especially renowned as the quickest driver in Formula One. Um, they they began to get more level pegging over the second half of ninety two, but um, um, but uh, I'm. I would put him a, a shade, a, a shade behind Bootsin in the same way as Griard 
is behind Arnu and and uh, does Bootsen make the top ten? Well, that's um, something we may find out. Let's but, uh, uh, let's move on into uh, into number ninth position. And of course, this list isn't about whether a driver is fast or slow for a team, but also whether they can keep it on the road as well. That does factor in. In ninth place, Andrea De Cesaris, uh, Ligier years eighty four to eighty five, started twenty seven times uh, for the team. Uh, why did you put him in ninth place? It's a similarish reasoning to to the Arnu factor actually in the sense that uh, De Cesaris had a year alongside Jacques Lafitte in um, in 1985 and that was De Cesaris's second year um, at Ligier and it was Lafitte's returning year after two years at Williams which hadn't gone particularly well um, and on pace really uh, De Cesaris did have Lafitte covered really over over that season on racecraft etc on on Sundays it wasn't racecraft that's a brilliant <laughs> phrase for De Cesaris <laughs> it wasn't quite the case but the thing with De Cesaris I mean he was he was maddening in the amount of accidents that he, had, that he had he was maddening in his belligerent track manners but he could do something like finish fourth in the Monaco Grand Prix uh, a minute ahead of Lafitte uh, in the same car with the same opportunities uh, so on on a circuit where if you make a mistake you're probably going to be out of the race immediately so so that's the reasoning really for him just about making it into the top 10 and um i mean his first year at ligier in 84 it was the first year where they had turbo engines with the renault v6 and um he was up alongside francois eno who who come straight from French Formula 3 so he was basically paying for the drive so that was a very very difficult season um, for the team with with unreliability and and nobody was really going to get an opportunity to do well but but in 85 he, he showed the flashes that just about get him into the top 10 he also showed uh, rather unfortunate car destroying skills which got him uh, kicked out of Ligier uh, a few races before the end of the season and replaced by Philippe Streff so, but that, but that's why he's down in ninth place, then, Kev. Then for uh, for you, would you agree with that? Yeah, I don't see where else you can you can put him. Really, you have to have him ahead of Arnoux because I think he, <laughs> there's a, a high percentage of actually doing a decent job while at Ligier for De Chesseris than Arnoux. But you can't, you definitely can't push him ahead of yeah the next you know the next drivers on the list. So yeah, I'm, I, I think he's I think he's a, a nailed on ninth, which is probably the first time I've said that in this series. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's let's move on uh, to a name uh, that's uh, certainly familiar uh, to many people who followed uh, Formula One back at this time, and that's Thierry Bootsen. Let's find out why he's eighth on the list after spending uh, Ligier years 91 to 92 and 32 starts for the team, and he makes eighth. Why is that? Ah, so he did make it. <laughs> it's more of a gut feeling based on what he'd come from before. So he'd had, he'd had a couple of years at... Williams in 1989 and 1990 and scored a scored a couple of excellent wins for them. I mean, you know, holding off Ayrton Senna throughout the Hungarian Grand Prix, um, winning in the wet at Adelaide. He was obviously a very, very good Grand Prix driver and then took a rather large step down the pecking order in 91 to join Ligier when uh, when Williams signed up the returning Nigel Mansell. Pretty much terrible season with their Lamborghini engines and rookie Eric Comas alongside him in the other car. 92 there was he just often seemed to be knocking on the door of points which 
obviously in those days only went down to sixth place um, and they had the Renault engines so things were things were uh, beginning to look a, a lot better for them and Comas actually shaped up as well but unfortunately the relationship between them wasn't very good because they had a couple of incidents with each other for which each blamed the other and they could never really find an agreement but um, so there were you know typical sort of solid boots and performances not particularly outstanding but um but just safe pair of hands really and and uh it would have been it would have been interesting to see him at Ligier maybe a year later well actually we're we're probably his his career is declining actually a year later but I was going to say when um when they began to uh, look quite competitive with the uh with the British drivers who we may come on to, uh, ah, but, uh, yes. but uh, and also, also um, you know, it would have been interesting to see him get an opportunity there in the mid eighties because that that would have been uh, quite interesting to see how he measured up against a Lafitte or something like that. But but yeah, he's he's number eight because he was a solid, safe pair of hands, and I think it's quite appropriate that oh, by Formula One point structure, while Ligier were in Formula One, he's just outside the top six and so mm. there you go <laughs> it's a it's a difficult we always you know we've said it on this this mini series a, a, a fair amount you, we need to judge the drivers on the time they spent with this team not the team that he just come out of the cannon sponsored uh williams and as a race winner but ending up with with ligier and uh, and as we've heard you know ending up in a very different part of the of the grid but kev what are your uh, would you agree it's about the right place for him on the list i was tempted I was tempted to argue pushing him a spot higher on the basis that I think the difference between these two drivers is really the time that they're at the team. Uh, in that the person in seventh place just just had a had better kit. And if we if we're extrapolating to what they did at other teams, I would say the person at number seven on this list left quite a lot on the table uh, when they were up against a, a proper driver, if you like, as a teammate. Um, but you could sort of say the same about Bootsin, and then you kind of look at their results, and you know, well, this the, the guy next on the list got three podiums with Ligier, whereas Bootsin, who was there for longer, made more starts, which we sometimes factor in, but he only scored a couple of points. So I think you'd be you'd be you'd be making you'd be making quite a big point, I think, to push Bootsin up to seventh. So in the end, I I, I end up- Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. I ended up agreeing with Marcus again, I'm afraid. No problem to agree. Well, let's get on to number seven who you've just mentioned, and that is someone who was with Ligier in 1982, would start 14 times uh, for the team. So we rewind a little bit now to the early 1980s when Eddie Cheever was driving a Ligier. Why put him seventh? It's a season that people tend to forget that he had uh, because he really became renowned as your archetypal solid Formula One journeyman through, throughout the 1980s. Um, uh, at the time he went to Ligier, he was actually quite a highly rated up-and-coming talent who'd had his first 
full season of Formula One with Osella, which in which with which he obviously wasn't going to achieve very much. But then had gone to Tyrrell in '81 and it actually looked quite good on occasion um, and was paired for most of that season with Michele Alboreto. So so he was a driver on the up uh, in '82. Unfortunately, Ligier was a team slightly on the down. Uh, Lafitte had come pretty close to winning the world championship in in 81 um, and stayed on for 82 and and they they carried on using the same car which was beginning which was a bit heavy um it was beginning to get a little bit uncompetitive uh but some of Cheever's performances were absolutely superb um especially when um, they, they finally brought out the new js19 for the monaco grand prix um it was a complete disaster and they said uh, and then the the north american races were coming up so they said right well we'll just take the js17 uh to the north american races and uh and chiva was you know absolutely superb then the js19 reappeared for the for the balance of the season and uh chiva had another fantastic performance in um, Las Vegas and uh, Monza he was good as well he actually scored I think Kevin said it was three podiums uh, when he was just talking about the you know, referring to him at the end of the boots segment we just did um, Lafitte only scored one that year and he'd nearly won the world championship the year before um, and Guy Ligio rated Chiva as a test driver um, and it was a really promising season and so promising that uh he went to Renault for 83, um, got blown away by Alain Prost. And, and uh, from that point on, he was Eddie Cheever, archetypal Formula One journeyman. <laughs> but but really, his, his performance in 82, uh, as much as he could within the constraints of the equipment, which was significantly less competitive than Ligier had had in the previous few seasons, were, were really, really good. Hmm. Kev? Yeah, I think you've got to, I've got to agree with all that. It's easy to think of... It, 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 it is worth remembering that Cheever was an up-and-comer at that point. He hadn't yet had the absolute uh, brick wall in his career that was Alain Prost. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't close, was it, in 83 at Renault? But, it, but he, you know, he... he he stands up very well against someone else on this list. Um, this would be higher up this. I don't think we're giving much away to say that his teammate is going to be further up this list. Um, so that that counts for him. Yeah, the the results were were pretty strong. Um, uh, certainly with those peaks that that Marcus discussed. So yeah, I think um, I think he's yeah having having tried to argue Thierry Boots and possibly ahead. I think actually it's it's it's, it's, it's the right way around. And Kev, you did your top ten American drivers list as well earlier this year, and he did like okay on that list as well. I do think that's kind of the way to sum him up, really. Is generally, he was okay. okay. Yeah. It's like not yeah. he didn't really deliver what his early promise. Eighty two is perhaps his last kind of oh this guy's good season, and then after that, you know, it wasn't only against Prost. Obviously, he was then. Um, yeah, we talked about in the Arrows uh, list. We talked about his time alongside Derek Warwick, which started mm. off close, and Derek more and more got the upper hand on him. Really, um, and he just never quite mm. delivered on that on that potential in Formula One. But I mean, he had a long career there. Um, but yeah, so mm. he, he definitely falls into the kind of solid journeyman, score a few points occasionally type driver. So I, I don't think he's one of those great lost talents that should have been a multi-world champion or anything like that. Would he? Ma- I, for Series 3, one of my lists will be the top 10 Grand Prix drivers not to win a Formula One race, world championship race. 
and he's he's not sure he's even going to quite make that. He'll probably be in my long list and then not make the ten. Um, but perhaps I shouldn't say that in case I change my mind when I uh, when I actually write it. <laughs> All right, look, we've 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 mentioned there might be a Brit or two possibly on this on this list. Uh, let's fast forward into the early nineties era where Mark Blundell drove for Ligier in nineteen ninety three. Did a, a sixteen start season. Why did he just miss out on being a top five driver for Ligier then? Oh, it was very very close. And um, in nineteen ninety three, which was uh, his first season at, uh, sorry, it was his only season at Ligier. Yeah. But in, in 1993, he was alongside Martin Brundle, obviously had a fair bit of experience in Formula One, um, almost a decade's worth. And Blundell only had one season um, alongside Brundle, funnily enough, at Brabham in 1991. And then uh, in 1992, he'd been McLaren test driver uh, and also won the Le Mans 24 hours with Peugeot, which you would imagine may have been reasonably significant in getting a Ligier drive the, the following year. Um, in 93, the, the two of them were so evenly matched. Based on that season, you might even be talking about an equal number fives. But I'm probably going to give away who's at number five now, aren't I? But, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, uh, but Brundle went back to Ligier in 1995 and put in some more really good performances um, by this time alongside Olivier Panis. And, and for me, 95 sort of swung it Brundle's way, which is obviously a bit unfortunate for Mark Blundell because he didn't have an opportunity to do that. Um, but, but yeah, he was very impressive. I think it was the first five Grand Prix he out-qualified Brundle. But then, the, but then it evened out. And I, and I think from memory, they were, they were absolute level pegging by the end of the season Brundle Brundle you would say out of the it's what you'd expect really bearing in mind their relative levels of experience but but Brundle was probably the more consistent racer Blundell perhaps had the higher peaks but uh, but more incidents a very strong season they both scored plenty of points that um they had the same Renault engine deal as they'd had in 92 with Thierry Bootsen which we've which we've already covered Mm-hmm. Um, but they also added uh, a deal with Williams, who, of course, were the benchmark Renault team, the world championship winning Renault team. Uh, they had a deal with Williams to use their gearboxes. And and, uh, and also the team was under new ownership. Cyril de Rouvre, uh, the ex-AGS um, owner, had um, bought into the team. And he was a bit more open to using non-French drivers and British drivers, although, unfortunately, uh, for the team, he was in prison for fraud during that year. And... Uh, the team was then bought by uh, another colourful character, Flavio Briatore. Uh, so uh, behind the scenes, <laughs> things were perhaps not running particularly smoothly. But, uh, but yeah, Blundell, very, uh, very good uh, season with Ligier. It's a, it's a shame he didn't have a, he didn't have another one. Uh, and it's a shame that his Formula One career wasn't as long as it should have been. But um, yeah, but yeah, he, yeah. he was. Um, Oh, I think he thoroughly deserves to be number six and could perhaps be a little bit unlucky not to be number five or at least equal yeah. five. 
Well, let, let, tell you what then, let's introduce number five before we can debate the order they're in. Uh, and then that is, we've mentioned already, Martin Brundle is fifth in the list. Uh, two spells at Ligier, 93 and 1995. Uh, 27 starts and he is fifth. So teammates there, absolutely next to each other on our list, Kev, fifth and sixth. Are they just about in the right order for you? Yeah, I think so. I think you'd be having to make a big point to put Blundell ahead. Um, you'd have to be leaning on the less experienced than Martin when he was there, I think, to, to say, oh, when that, as a result of that, he therefore did better. But I mean, if you just to underline Marcus's point about how close they were in 93, on the super times, which is where we average the pace, uh, so it's the fastest lap of each driver across the season. Um, there's 0.06% between them. I mean, that that they were that's absolutely nothing. Um, and they, yeah, so they were very close on performance. But if you if you look at some of the criteria that matters, especially to a team battling in the midfield, you know, Brundle did score more points. Yeah, that's that's important. He he brought the brought the points home. And the the, the big thing for me is the ninety five performances. You know, where he he's when he does drive in ninety five for Ligier, he's better than 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 the incumbent driver who we may get onto speaking about shortly. And then there were star performances like the Belgian Grand Prix where he was third, even though I think he was a little bit naughty with some of his uh, on-track moves against Damon Hill towards the end of the race. Uh, remember that. D- Damon was on the receiving end that day because he'd already been Michael Schumacher earlier on in the race. Um, so it wasn't one of his, uh, his happier days, but it was still a brilliant performance to finish third in one of those tricky conditions. And that's where an experienced, good quality driver can really make a difference for a midfield team. If you get one of those changeable conditions, crazy races, you want someone who's going to be on the ball enough, keep it out of the wall, keep it out of trouble, and suddenly you get you know a third or a fifth instead of your usual eighth, tenth, twelfth position. So I think Martin was Martin got very good at that, uh, and he had to really because he very rarely had any you know had decent enough equipment to run anywhere near the front. So yeah, I think he the ninety five thing definitely pushes him pushes him ahead of Blondell for me. The podium as well in ninety three at the San Marino Grand Prix. Hill ahead of him with brake failure, but still getting those results, uh, which probably swings it just in uh, in in his favour. But uh, obviously, you know, Marcus, you not had your say on on Martin Brundle yet, and why you put him ahead of Blundell. I sort of almost explained it when I was talking about Mark yeah. Brundell, but uh, and, and actually, ironically, obviously, well, well, maybe not ironically, but amusingly, the the two of them. Uh, the two of them still great friends and um, they went into business together running their management company, racing driver management company, 2MB. He was a very, very good pro in Formula One by that time, wasn't he? And um, apart from 93, which which we've mentioned, the, the 95 performances alongside Olivier Panis were were really excellent, um, quite a lot of them. And um, that was with um, the Mugen Honda engines by, by then, perhaps weren't necessarily as strong as um, a proposition as the Renault had been before that. He wasn't driving the full season because Aguri Suzuki was bringing money to do a, um, a handful of races that year. So he just he didn't have the continuity either, which however experienced you are, you, you need that. But I mentioned the Mugen engines and his name cropped up in conversation uh, very briefly a couple of minutes ago, Michael Schumacher. He uh, clearly never raced a Ligier, but it was um, it was a test in Elysier that that actually meant that the team used the Mugen engines in 95 because he'd won the championship for Benetton in 94 uh, with Ford power, uh, tested the Ligier with its Renault engine, um, said, oh, this is really good. Uh, so Flavio Briatore, who at the, that time owned both teams, 
said, right, we're having the Renaults for the Benettons. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, leaving the Ligiers to have the Mugens. So, um, and, uh, and the car was also dubbed the, uh, the Blue Benetton uh, because, of its, uh, because it, it looked reasonably similar. Um, as you might expect, uh, with the same chap owning both teams, but uh, but yeah, uh, Brundle just about gets it over Blundell, and and actually similarly to what I was saying about Mark Blundell, I sort of felt a little bit uh, as though he was perhaps unlucky not to be one place further up as well. But we might get to that mm. in a moment. Well, let, let's move on to fourth place and we get on to a Ligier winner. Uh, Ligier years 94 to 96 started 49 times. And as I've mentioned, a, a Ligier winner. Uh, Olivier Panis in fourth place. As I just said in, in the lead in, um, perhaps Martin Brundle was unlucky not to be ahead of him because if you if you look at it the only real decent barometer uh a panis had alongside him during the years when ligier was called ligier so we're, we're, we're gonna have to make uh, the distinction at this point because obviously it changed hands and became prost in 1997 and uh and uh Jano Chuli, um came in and um uh the but we're discounting the post 96 seasons this is just Ligier um, but it, really Brundle was the only truly worthwhile teammate he had during the time at Ligier and, and, and probably Brundle was a bit quicker than him but funnily enough uh, Panis despite being in the early stages of a Formula 1 career sort of seemed to be good at harvesting the old points and uh, getting getting the car to the finish in high positions in races of, of high attrition. Um, so, um, but the real standout that puts him at number four is that win in Monaco. Um, and I was actually there, um, funnily enough. I was um, there working as a journalist, one of the few Grand Prix I, I have worked as a journalist, and I was watching the race by the swimming pool. Uh, and uh, it, there was a, there's a big screen on the hill where you can see uh, what's happened elsewhere around the circuit. And and it was just the most remarkable race. And uh, obviously by the end of it, only three cars were still running. But Panis, <laughs> Panis had been properly doing some overtaking on, on people. And it was, a, it was just one of those miracle standout performances that just come along once in a, once in a blue moon. You, um, and we don't see enough of him in formula one actually we do a little bit more recently but we went through many years where it was just so <laughs> predictable wasn't it you, you knew that only one of only two or three drivers could could win a grand prix but but this was yeah was one of those real um stat and it wasn't just uh a fluked result he really earned it as well driving up from the middle of the grid and as i said doing a lot of overtaking and and yeah, you know, he proved he he proved that he was quick uh, when it became Prost. Although yeah, we're leaving that out for now. He was in world mm. championship contention early in that '97 season. He just about shades it over Brundle, I think. Yeah, and what a swan song as well for the Ligier name, which which is we're focusing on 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 that name in in, in Formula One. Uh, Kev, hard to argue him above fourth place, but hard to argue below, perhaps. Yeah, I think um, yeah, I think he has to be he has to be fourth. I mean, even looking at ninety five, as as Marcus alluded to, he did 
know, he did score more points than than Martin. Although I think you know Brundle was obviously first of all didn't do the full campaign. Was perhaps you could argue perhaps he was a little bit more unlucky. Um, but yeah, on that on that score, Panis is ahead. But the but the the, <laughs> the nineteen ninety six Monaco Grand Prix. And let's remember that he did he started fourteenth. He did do some overtaking, including my favourite, which was putting Eddie Irvine um, r- rather wide at Lowe's hairpin. That was a good one. Um, and uh, although sadly for some other people in the race that didn't put Irvine out of the race, he was able to cause chaos later on. Um, and but then he also held off David Coulthard uh, at the end in the McLaren. He did the second fastest lap of the race, so it was a genuine, you know, it was a day of days type type event. I think it's fifteen years since Ligier had won a race as well, so remarkable. And yeah, I just when you think of Panis, I know he drove for other teams, but when I think of Panis, I think of him in blue. And, and leading the Ligier line so um, but yeah he can't I don't think you can get I, it's a, again we're talking about different eras when we're going to compare him to the, the top three but I think the other three were you know for different reasons they just they just have to be ahead of him on the list so I think sort of last of the winners Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. And first of the modern, more modern era, I think is entirely, entirely fair. Okay, well, look, let's get into that top three then, and that might be where the order gets argued and juggled around, or maybe it's a, it's a top three that can only be in this order. Number three, let's go back to the 1970s era. Now, he would start seven times, and he would be a Ligier winner. Patrick Depayet, third place then, why here? The gulf between number three and number four is by far the biggest of any in this <laughs> top ten. Uh, so, absolutely not one, not one second of doubt in contemplating this, who my top three were. Um, the reason why Patrick Depaye, uh has to slot in at number three is just because he only did the seven races. Yeah, we haven't got enough of a Ligier career to, to go on. Had he at least made it to 15 races and completed the 79 season, he could well have been world champion and he might be top of this list. But unfortunately, he decided it would be a great idea in the middle of a racing season to, to go hang gliding. The hang glider crashed uh, with, I was going to say, disastrous results as a consequence, but actually I think he was blooming lucky to, um, to get away with broken legs, from which he was still recovering when he started the 1980 season with Alfa Romeo, having been sacked by Guy Ligier as a result of going hang gliding. Uh, whether he would have sacked him if he'd gone hang gliding and then landed absolutely safely uh, is, a, is another matter. Uh, Surely not. Actually, Guilherme probably wouldn't have even known. <laughs> but, but anyway, he came in at the start of the 79 season as Ligier expanded to a two-car team for, their, for the first time. Well, I, I say the first time, but they had run two cars in the 77 Japanese Grand Prix as a one-off. But, um, but in 79... Full-time two-car team coming in alongside Jacques Lafitte. Um, he'd been at Tyrrell for absolutely yonks. And Ligier had switched to the Cosworth engines that season. And and the car was absolutely dominant <clears throat> at, at the start at the start of that year. And Jacques Lafitte won the first two races. Um, 
Lafitte was Lafitte was a bit annoyed at the signing of Depay. Um, he he wanted the team to impose a number one, number two uh, uh, hierarchy, and uh, which. I think it's a bit rich because arguably you might have given it to Depay at that time, <laughs> but but, um, but but anyway they didn't, uh, and it didn't really matter anyway because Lafitte was so well entrenched uh, within Ligier that he was clearly the the guy who was up and running at the start of the '79 season and won the first two Grand Prix. But uh, by the time the the F1 season uh, came to Europe uh, Depay was really getting into his swing and, and won, won the Spanish Grand Prix uh, and then really the, the Belgian Grand Prix is the one where they really suffered as a consequence of not having the team orders because the two Ligier drivers just frantically battled it out uh, with the result they both completely killed their tyres and uh, and one of them crashed I can't remember which one it was I think it was Lafitte but uh, but anyway, uh, and then and then there came Monaco, uh, and Jody Schechter by this time had won two races on the trot for Ferrari, and they were beginning to become the form team, and uh, and then Depay had his hang gliding accident. But on the form that he'd had at in the last two or three races at that time, you could say that had he stayed there, and he was also a very um, he was no. He was renowned to be a very good test driver. Um, so had he remained with the team uh, and they hadn't gone down development blind alleys in the second half of 79, which were actually mostly at the behest of Guy Ligier himself rather than any of his technical people, Depaye could have um, could possibly have ended up being a world champion. Uh, and certainly so if he stayed on for, for 1980. He was a very, very fast very, very fast driver. Won a Grand Prix with Ligier in just his fifth or sixth start. Um, and that's why he's clearly at number three in the list. Yeah, arriving at Ligier as, a, as an established force in Grand Prix racing, a race winner, as you say, and, uh, and someone who perhaps, Kev, is he on this list so high up because of the... You know what could have been with with his time with the team. Well, well it's funny when I was kind of th- I tried to think of what my list would look like uh, before then. Obviously, opening up what what Marcus had written, and I, I my gut feeling was to have uh, Depay at number two. Uh, and then when I looked at, I, I was I was actually shocked that he'd only done the seven races because when I think of Ligia, I think of Lafitte and Depay running around in '79, but only the seven races. I found it. I was, you know, I was quite taken aback. Really, it shows the impact that 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 that, that moment had for Ligier. Uh, it, for sadly, it was Depay that crashed at, uh, at the Belgian Grand Prix. Crashed out of it. Lafitte finished second to Schecter uh, on that one. And actually, if you look at the, we mentioned the Super Times before for '79, Depay comes out number one. Now, obviously, he wasn't there to then drive the car in the second half of the year as it fell away. So that's probably a bit of a false impression. But it gives you an idea of how quick he was in those first those first seven races. Um, but I, I, yeah. So for me, he, he has to be third because uh, because yeah, he yeah he, he did win that race. He looked really impressive. Compared very well to the incumbent, but only seven races. I mean, how far up can you push someone uh, on on seven races? Particularly when you've got two, yeah, you know, I think very good drivers there for longer. 
Um, so yeah, I, I completely agree with his. His uh, although I was shocked when I first opened it, it makes total sense, <laughs> which is why we have people <laughs> doing the research to do these lists. You know, and a different. You were talking about hang gliding halfway through. You know, a season Formula One drivers these days. Uh, it's in the contract they can't do dangerous sports. The 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 you know most dangerous thing they'll do is a bit of mountain cycling for their fitness or something over the. Uh, over the summer break but of course it was a different era of of grand prix driver and a different era of safety as well which would uh, of course eventually uh, cost him his his life and and it is very hard putting these lists together i guess for you guys because there is so much you know with a driver that then goes on to different teams and you can see how they develop and although we always talk about the driver in these top 10 lists with their time at the team there's so much unknown with what his career could have been as a very quick driver, but also a kind of throw everything at, you know, use the phrase life is for living in your piece. And that kind of sums up him as a driver. He was very much a free spirit. He really ticks the boxes of the romantic image of a racing driver, if you like. He was renowned as being a nonconformist, even in the the 1970s, we regard as being nonconformist. So he probably, he, he probably would have, belonged more in the 50s really as far as that's concerned I, I would imagine that a driver like him as the as the commercial influence in Formula One became stronger and stronger probably would have felt less and less at home and happy mm. uh, yeah but, but then you also think well that was an era where the careers weren't anywhere near as long as they are now because we did have the much inferior safety standards which clearly uh, took their own toll but mm. but you also had drivers doing seven or eight years in formula one and then getting out while they were still in one piece uh, rather than <laughs> yes rather than carrying on for 15 years 20 years like we like we see today so by 1979 well 1979 was Depay's sixth season in formula one so would he maybe have gone on for two more years or something uh, mm. Difficult to tell, but I, I do think that you know, had he, had he not decided hang gliding was a great idea, stayed at Ligier for 1980, it, it could have been a very close run thing in the championship between him and Alan Jones um, at Williams. But, uh, and then his window would have what ifs. His window would have closed shortly afterwards because the 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 Prost Senna PK returning louder mm. Mansell era was just around the corner. I think that as a group they moved the probably moved the be up the bar beyond some <laughs> of the drivers that we that we're talking about there. Well, let's get on to a couple of drivers now. We're going to talk about the second place and the first place together because once we do number two, it'll be obviously number one is. So in second on your list, Didier Peroni. Uh, Didier Peroni, Ligier in 1980, started 14 times, was a double pole sitter and a single-time race winner. And first on your list, you put Jacques Lafitte. Uh, two spells with the team, 132 starts, six wins, seven poles, was always probably going to be number one on your list. So that's why I thought I'd mention those two now, uh, because there's not much to wait for the, for the number one. But uh, but we'll, we'll talk about them together. Didier Peroni in second, Marcus. Well, I, I think you might have ruined it for some of the listeners, Martin, because... A possible some of them might, debate. Some yeah. of them might have been expecting Pedro Diniz to be at number one. For <laughs> <laughs> one of my... One of my absolute clear memories uh, from my youth, uh, at th- 13 years old in this case, um, 
uh, my dad and I at the 1980 British Grand Prix. And we, uh, and I don't know why we watched that one from the exit of Druids, because we were normally South Bank people at Brands Hatch. But, um, but anyway, we, we did. And I remember the field coming through at the end of lap one. And, and from the exit of Druids, you could see the approach to Paddock. At, um, so right at the beginning of the, the lap, Peroni shot into view. It seemed like we waited 10 seconds for the next car. As to, to the extent where you think there must have been a massive pile-up out in the country or something. Uh, but but no, um, the second car shot into view and that was Jacques Lafitte. And then came the Williamses and then, you know, there weren't any holes in the field. The the Ligier was so dominant around around that track. And, and it's a fairly long-winded way of getting to it, Martin, but you mentioned uh, one victory, but really it should have been uh, for Peroni uh, but really it should have been quite a lot more um, <clears throat> because he won that Belgian Grand Prix at Zolder that was his first Grand Prix win um, he then was leading the Monaco Grand Prix uh, when the car jumped out of gear going into Casino Square which uh, put him into the barriers um, he was then leading the Spanish Grand Prix which ultimately didn't count for points because of the FISA FOCA war at the time. Uh, and I, it, the, it slipped my mind why he didn't win it in the end, but that was another win that got away. <coughs> um, French Grand Prix, um, him and Lafitte were contenders, but they got, they got done on strategy, tire strategy by Williams, who chose a better uh, diameter front wheel for, for their car. Um, and then Brands Hatch, where he was absolutely dominating um, until uh, not one but two punctures. Um, so, in a parallel universe, we we're looking back on Pironi having won five successive races in the middle of 1980, uh, and he was yeah he was at the time thought to be the the fastest fastest thing in Formula One, which uh, Gilles Villeneuve obviously uh, put to bed the following year when they were teammates at Ferrari, but. Um, but it was a really impressive season from a driver who was renowned as well and truly up and coming at the time after a couple of seasons with Tyrrell. Um, and, uh, and he did a very good job. Um, he also did a very good job of signing a nice deal with Ferrari behind the backs of uh, Ligier and his people and, uh, and rather annoying them. Um, but really... Jacques Lafitte has to be number one um, just because of his, I, I think I used the word talismanic uh, in the in the piece, but he that's what he was to Ligier. Um, but funnily enough, he, he wasn't the intended driver uh, when they first launched the team. That was supposed to be Jean-Pierre Beltoise um, uh, when they launched the team at the end of 1975. But <clears throat> uh, then... There was a change of heart and Lafitte was put in and for the start of 76 and he had seven consecutive seasons there and uh, you know, he he really carried carried that team in the cockpit um, over the first three seasons. Um, solo car, uh, won the Swedish Grand Prix in 77, uh, then had stiff competition from very, very quick teammates in 79 and 80, Depaye and Peroni, but actually um, 
Kevin, you mentioned the super times for 79. I'd be interested to see what they are for 80. But I know that the the as the qualifying head-to-head between Lafitte and Peroni is actually much closer than you'd think it was. Um, some, something like 8-6 to Peroni or something like that. It's just under, yeah, I was looking it up while you were talking, actually, that the, the super times gap between Peroni and Lafitte in 1980 is just under 0.3%. So it's it's significant enough to say, for you to say well, that Peroni was was the, the, the quicker, probably, but not, it's not the sort of, it's not a thrashing by any means. You know, that's no. a perfectly respectable uh, gap. Yeah, I mean, Lafitte was, Lafitte was quicker than people give him credit for, and, and um Clearly, obviously, that extended into 81 as well when the Matra engines returned under uh, Tolbo uh, branding for the team that year. And um, and Lafitte came closer than he'd ever done to, to winning the World Championship with, um, with a couple of wins in Austria and Canada. That was another superb season. The return in 85 and 86 as well. He was showing his old some of his old form um, until that day at Brands Hatch where he's his Formula One career ended. So, um, and that, by that point, that was, you know, over 10 seasons since he and Ligier had started started a Grand Prix together for the first time. So, so his, his significance in the Ligier history is absolutely at the top. And actually, um, the his place as a quick Ligier driver is also without doubt. And he's not he's not anywhere near as uh, shaded as you would imagine by drivers of the calibre of Depaye and Peroni. Well, he, he probably suffers a bit because of the comparison, uh, what, when he was at Williams, like that, that, that was a, it wasn't, that wasn't very good. <laughs> you know, he was quite considerably, you know, blown away by, by Keke Rosberg, I think. I know he had a few good days there, but nothing like what you would say his, his peaks were at Ligier. Um, but yeah, just to, just to back up Marcus's point, really. I mean, Ligier scored nine wins in Formula One, and Lafitte scored six of them. He was only six points off of Nelson Piquet's you know t- t- total in 1981. So that and that's obviously in the days where they didn't give 25 points for a win. I think it was still nine at that point, wasn't it? They hadn't quite it got to ten yet. It was nine. Yeah. Nine nine for a win, six for a second. So he's one second place away. Um, and yeah, he's miles ahead of everyone else on the stats, really, uh, including number of starts. Um, yeah, he, I think he had to be number one. I kind of like to think of it as Peroni being marginally the fastest Ligier driver, unless we include Alain Prost's one-off test that he did many years later. Um, but yeah, the far, probably Peroni the fastest Ligier uh, uh, racing driver by, a, by a, a, a small amount, but Lafitte's miles out front uh, for this overall list, I think. Well, there we go. Another fantastic top 10 put together. Uh, something I hadn't realised until uh, I saw the research for this show was actually his career-ending accident was something that uh, uh, led to Formula One changing the safety rules after that to ensure that uh, the driver's... Is it the driver's front feet were behind... Or front feet. Driver's feet were behind the front axle, which just seems kind of crazy that it, it wasn't that long ago in Formula One that, that that rule came in. It's quite amazing some of the, what we would consider to be quite basic and obvious safety. I mean, is having the driver's feet behind the front axle a safety feature? I mean, I would have thought that would be a fairly <laughs> obvious thing to do, really. But, you know, I suppose it's easy with hindsight. But, of course, the other thing about that race is that was the race in which he matched 
Graham Hill's uh, number of world championship starts. So for a while, they were the two oh. at the top of the table with the most, most. And then, of course, Ricardo Patrese came along and blew that yeah. away. And, and now they all do more than 300, it seems. Before, Well, Vettel's going to end on 299, isn't he? He's not quite yes, going to make will. 300. But um, in those days, 176 was, you know, that was record-breaking levels, you know, career length. And, of course, most of it was at Ligio. Absolutely brilliant. Well, thank you very much, guys, for joining us on the podcast uh, today for another Top 10 list. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as well. And maybe you want to agree or disagree with the order. You're very welcome to let us know. Thank you very much for everyone. Let's leave some feedback on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. A little star rating and a few words uh, about the, the podcast that we do, whether it's the regular staff or the little mini series that, uh, that we work on. I hope you enjoy listening and thank you if you have. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner have uh, left a review most recently that has been the autosport podcast and we'll see you on the next one mary redeemed a fifty thousand dollar cash prize playing chumba casino this year i was only playing for fun so winning this was a dream come true chumba casino is america's number one social casino experience it's serious fun with over 80 casino style games to choose from you too could win life-changing amounts of cash be like mary log on to chumbacasino.com and give them a whirl that's chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary void or prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details the voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner Hey, what's up, guys? This is MMA fighter Clay Guida, and I'm not afraid of anyone or anything, but losing my hair was an entirely different kind of fight. So if you're suffering from hair loss like I was, then you got to check out my boys at Bosley. Pound for pound, they are the champions of hair restoration. That's why I turned to Bosley to get my hair back. The entire Bosley team was so professional and kind from start to finish. All it took was a simple one-day procedure, and I was on my way back to rocking my full hair again. So take it from me. Don't wait if you are thinning or receding. I'm so thrilled with my results, I just wish I would have went to Bosley sooner. It's time to finally knock out hair loss because the best is yet to come. Check out Bosley today. When MMA fighter Clay Guida was losing his hair, he trusted Bosley to get it back. Now it's your turn. Get a free information kit, plus get a $250 off gift card when you text CLAY to 203203. Text CLAY to 203203. Or go to bosley.com. That's bosley.com. Sports Social Podcast Network. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.